Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. Fire in London, a high-rise building. You've heard about it all morning here on 680 CJOB. 12 people are confirmed dead. 74 people are injured. Several of those are in critical condition. And welcome to Mackling and McGarry. Tristan Field-Jones is here for Brett McGarry. We've got a very busy news day. So in the words of Peter Warren, we're going to get right down to business. And we welcome to the program Alex Forrest. He's president of the United Firefighters of Winnipeg. Alex, thanks for taking some time with us this afternoon. I can only imagine your thoughts when you see video like what we're seeing out of London overnight and what the scenario might be for a similar type of fire here in Winnipeg. Tristan and I were curious to know, does Winnipeg have the, have the equipment to, to fight something like this? Yes, uh, matter of fact, uh, we're training today. It, it was scheduled beforehand, but we're actually going through high, uh, high building uh, fire experiences. We're going through training today. Uh, we have a very good fire department, and uh, we have the ability to respond to any of our buildings in the city of Winnipeg, including the high-rise. Uh, this is uh, something that it just puts fear in all firefighters' hearts when they see this because uh, high-rise buildings are usually the most dangerous and the hardest to fight, strictly because of the sheer numbers and the uh, strategy that's needed to fight those type of fires. Alex, I have to ask, um, and I know I've heard this several times from people who are either friends who are firefighters or who work in the industry or whatever it may be, what makes these high-rises so so dangerous, obviously besides the enormous size and the number of people who are in them, but what else can make something like this so dangerous? Well, uh, you're breaking up a bit, but uh, one of the things that makes these fires so dangerous is you need a, an enormous number of people. It is ex- extremely exhausting. Many times we aren't able to use the elevator system, so we have to bring a large amount of equipment to the fire. We have to be able to evacuate a large, large number of people. And uh, uh, this is something that that we do all the time. We respond to high-rise fires in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, almost every single major building that we have in the city of Winnipeg, we have a pre-fire plan. We know exactly what we need to do. Uh, if, if it's on a specific floor, if it's on, uh, at the 28th floor of the Richardson building, we know exactly what type of resources we're going to need, exactly how to fight that fire. Fire Commissioner in London, Danny Cotton, told reporters, in my 29 years of being a firefighter, I've never, ever seen anything of this scale. Lots of people, lots of witnesses comparing it to 9-11 in terms of the scale and the volume of the flames. Uh, Of course, the height of the building, uh, slightly different, but you could see the comparisons. And of course, we're getting reports that children and babies were being thrown from 10 and 15 story, uh, 10th and 15th floor. Uh, is that something that, that would be part of a, of a rescue operation, Alex? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, there's probably no worse way to die than in a fire. And you, you saw that in 9-11 when the fires were occurring. 
people literally chose to jump out of a window rather than go through the horrors of a fire uh, to, to, to have to make the decision of throwing your child out the window to make sure they don't have to go through the horror of that death. Uh, it is something that brings fear into every firefighter's heart. But we understand that. Because we've also had firefighters that have been trapped in fires where they literally jump out of the next window because of the heat, because it can be such a uh, horrific, uh, uh, painful ending. Uh, we've, one of the things that happens is that when we deal with these things, you have to be able to be prepared for the worst case scenario. That's why we have X number of firefighters in the city of Winnipeg, because you need to have those firefighters there in case you do have a London situation. And that's one of the things that we're seeing in London is uh, I believe in the next few weeks you're going to see that there wasn't enough firefighters that were on the scene because in the city of London they went through massive cuts to their fire department despite warnings of firefighters. And I think you're going to see the firefighters of London through inquiries show that they never had enough firefighters there to mitigate that particular horrific situation. Alex, I, I have to ask, when it comes to high-rise fires, I mean, a lot of people saying they've never seen anything quite like this, and, and the pictures and the video is just absolutely shocking. And, I mean, we've seen houses go up in flames before, and we've seen the smaller structures, uh, you know, go up right. in flames. But wh- what at all could cause some, a building this massive to, be, to become a, a torch? It just it seems so incomprehensible. Well, what's happening is building construction is changing. And I think you're going to see that building construction was part of the reason why this fire could spread so quickly. What happened is it looks like the fire spread on the outside of the building because of different fire elements that they use. Uh, in Canada, one of the things that we're de- dealing with is we're getting a proliferation of increased high-rise buildings that are going to be built with wood instead of uh, encased construction. And so we are sounding the alarm there, basically saying that these high-rise buildings, they need to be uh, non-wood, non-combustible materials because it's hard enough to fight these fires. We are, we are seeing 12, 13-story wood construction buildings across Canada. And I think what you're going to see is the fallout from this fire is going to be extreme because you're going to see that there wasn't enough firefighters in London to fight this fire because of, of, of cutbacks. And, and you're going to see that it was caused because of some of the building construction. It looks like the fire, when I watched, watched those scenes, it looks like the fire went up the side of the building because of the material they used on the side of the building was not properly fire resistant. And it looks like that's how they could go up the side of the building and go into the windows and create such a horrific scene. And especially with modern building construction and the increase in plastics, fires burn much hotter and much faster than they did even 10 years ago. I can tell you that within that building, there was combustible material that was literally going up like a uh, uh, like gas was poured on it because of the plastics. Alex Forrest is the president of the United Firefighters of Winnipeg. He joins us on Mackling and McGarry. And Alex, I have to ask you, are the exterior, and I think you touched on this, but maybe just elaborate that the exterior materials used uh, are just as important in terms of aesthetics as they are to safety. Right, exactly. What happens is the exterior fires, when you see high-rise buildings, what happens is we have fire doors, we have fire guards from, from floor to floor, but if the fire is going to such a level that it starts going out the windows, they can catch the outside of the building up, so the fire does not expand through the interior of the building, but the fire literally jumps from 
floor to floor because of the outside material. And we've seen that with fires here in Winnipeg because we're building houses that are closer together and we're seeing that the that you might have two or three houses on fire where 10 years ago we would pull up and there would only be one house. I hear you. The reason for that is because the exterior does not match the interior when it comes to fire-resistant materials. Alex, we're going to let you go on that note. We appreciate, once again, you taking some time with us, as always. The accessibility is very much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much. Alex Forrest, President of the United Firefighters of Winnipeg. They are, ironically, and a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. uh, doing some high level firefighting uh, today and doing some training today. Uh, traffic note just coming in at 780-6868. Traffic lights, traffic signals out McPhillips at Leela. There are no police present at that time. If you need to be reminded, uh, treat, please treat that as a four-way stop. Coming up to one fourteen on this Wednesday afternoon when we come back following your weather and forecast update, we'll visit with Global News' Sean Leslie. He was just in the presence of the Premier, the Premier speaking publicly for the first time in a while on a variety of topics. We'll find out what information Premier Pallister had for the public when we come back. It's Greg and Tristan with you on this Wednesday afternoon coming up to 118. Thanks for spending some time with us this afternoon. Last night's provincial by-election in Point Douglas saw the NDP uh, hold a seat that was left vacated by Kevin Chief when he walked away from politics. Bernadette Smith holds on to Point Douglas. The NDP has never lost that constituency in a provincial election. The Premier made himself available to the media to answer questions on a variety of topics in the last hour or so. Global Sean Leslie was there, and Sean joins us now. Sean, uh, maybe you could give us the highlights of the Premier's comments, if you wouldn't mind. Well, yeah, this is the first time we've been able to talk to the Premier for a while because of that Point Douglas by-election. There's a blackout that happens, and the government's not really allowed to promote itself. Um, and so we haven't got to talk to the Premier much lately. So today, the questions, though, uh, dominated. They, they really swirled around Churchill. That was the main thing. Um, with that rail line going down, we're finding about that on Friday, and then sort of, you know, what's happening in the short term to help those people out. And so uh, the, the the main things to come out of that really is that the Premier wouldn't commit to uh, any kind of subsidies for people in Churchill, any of the uh, companies that do the shipping, any anything like that, saying it's too early. They're still assessing just how badly damaged the rail line is, how long it's going to take. And then, you know, the the nature of, like, what items are actually going to be needed up there, because there's... Lots of stuff. You're talking about groceries, fuel, uh, jet fuel, propane. Most of the houses up there are heated by propane. So, you know, there's there's a t- there's an issue there with getting it done before the winter as well. So they really uh, sort of reinforcing that message that they want to know more about how long it's going to take and what the community needs before they go ahead and talk about um, how they're going to subsidize people up there. Uh, Sean, I have to ask, was there any time frame given for potential subsidies i know you mentioned that they're still not even sure what is needed in the community but was there any time frame at all or any idea of how long it might take before something is done no there was no time frame from the premier today on that we have heard from omnitrax that it's going to take about four weeks to figure out how what the damage is like on this rail line i mean there's literally hundreds of culverts more than 30 bridges that's the type of damage we're potentially talking about and it's up there um in, in almost permafrost right so in the summer it gets really muddy and soupy in the winter of course the conditions are tough too so construction's going to be difficult four weeks is what we've heard from them so you know 
it's likely that you're going to need to get that report from Omnitrax, of course, the owners of the rail line, uh, and then the province you know, will maybe be able to make a decision after that. That is the voice of Sean Leslie from Global News. He joins us now from the legislature. Here is the voice of our premier, Brian Pallister. We're meeting uh, today with the mayor of Churchill and several ministers to discuss the myriad number of issues around this, what I consider to be a serious emergency. It is really important that we make sure that every aspect of safety for the people in the area, access to uh, food, access to fuel, this is critical. Serious emergency. I I just don't see it being treated that way. Let's move on from Churchill, though. Uh, Sean, what else did the premier have to tell us and share with us today? He talks a little bit about the health care announcement that's uh, happening right now or, or just wrapped up. Uh, don't know the details of that yet. I believe they're being announced um, uh, as we speak. But, Sean, uh, I'll, I'll help you out there. Uh, Keith McCullough is going to join us in about eight minutes and probably join Tristan uh, in the news at one thirty to uh, to uh, give us an update on what's shared at that WRHA news conference. So uh, don't well, let's wor- not don't- scoop. Let's not scoop Keith then on well, that yeah, one. Yeah, I, I don't want you to you know uh, try and talk about something you haven't got information on. So uh, don't. Well, sweat what he did that. say. What he did say, Greg, is just sort of the party line all along on this, and that's that. You know, it, it's in suff- such rough shape and that people wait too long in ERs and that this shakeup is going to solve that problem. He was asked point blank, hey, if this doesn't work, what happens? Do you go back to the, you know, to what we had before? And he was, he had no time for that, saying this is going to work. This is the best advice we've got. And uh, we're moving forward with this, despite some doctors and some facilities saying, uh, urging the government not to go ahead with this plan. Sean, I have to ask, going back to Churchill for a second there, I mean, we, myself and Greg, we discussed this yesterday about how we thought that the government's response was a bit, uh, well, from our perspective anyway, confusing at best, especially since you know, there were so many people up north that were isolated from this. Did he have, I know he mentioned that they're still waiting, they're still trying to figure that out. Did he have any words that could potentially comfort the people up there that could maybe say, hey, you know, in the meantime, here's what you could expect? Or is it still just a wait and see period right now? He, he's, you know, they're in, in his language, you know, they're, they're doing what they can in terms of reaching out to the locals up there and figuring out what they're going to need, how that's going to play out. I think a lot of the confusion here, guys, and this is just me talking, is just that it's a it's a weird jurisdictional thing because you've got the federal government who's responsible for some of these subsidies. You've got Omnitrax, the owner of this private line, and then you've got the province as well. And then you've got the people in Churchill, too. Uh, and it's such an isolated community that it's not the same as when a place like, uh, you know, in the southwest part of the province that's three hours away gets cut off. So that's so there's this people are trying to figure out, I think, where the funding's going to come from. Uh, one one interesting thing that that was brought up, I mean, they, they are looking at the fact that they've got that extra long runway up there. And so there are, you know, possibilities that there could be larger uh, air air cargo uh, shipments going up there, that that could be one thing they're going to do. And then the other option, of course, is by freighter going through Hudson Bay. So shipping over to Montreal and then up into northern Quebec and across Hudson Bay. But that takes twice as long and costs twice as much. So, you know, it's there aren't any easy decisions here. And this isn't a quick fix. This is something that's going to take months to work out. Well, Sean Leslie, we appreciate you taking some time with us from the legislature this afternoon. And uh, we look forward to your report on Global News at six o'clock tonight. Of course, anytime, guys. Thanks. Sean, thank you. Leslie, always appreciate getting some time with Sean. Uh, the, the, do you want to replay the words of the Premier here? I'm going to do that right yeah. now. 
We're meeting uh, today with the mayor of Churchill and several ministers to discuss the myriad number of issues around this, what I consider to be a serious emergency. It is really important that we make sure of every aspect of safety for the people in the area, access to uh, food, access to fuel. This is critical. Yet there's no plan. We're, we're five days removed from realizing where we were and what we're going to be dealing with. I, I just I just don't get the sense that this is being viewed and treated as though it's an emergency. Well, here's the thing, Greg. Allow me to try and play devil's advocate here for, for a second. Uh, I mean, we're kind of sitting here sort of armchair quarterbacking this, right? Of course, I, that's I have, job. Exactly. I have no idea... Uh, you know, I have no idea how much planning or, or how much uh, information they need before they do something when it comes to the situation. And like Sean mentioned, it is a little bit messier than normal because there's Omnitrax, there's the federal government involved. There are a lot more moving parts. Now, having said that, though, what I've heard sounds like lip service more than anything else. I, I mean, there's a community that's isolated except only by air. And we're hearing critical situation, we're hearing all the important words, but we're not hearing in terms of, well, right now, here's what we're doing. Was there no kind of basic plan of, you know, for the next few weeks, we'll do this until we get something more concrete? Sean mentioned the extra long runway. We had a listener, Jack, who said, hey, we have military cargo planes that do touch and go exercises here in Winnipeg. We've got 17 wing. Mm -hmm. How has the word military not once come up yet? In uh, what's going on, it'll be a week on Friday since we learned of this very serious situation, what I would consider an emergency. We'll press pause on that discussion, and when we come back, as mentioned, we will visit with Global News' Keith McCullough, who was on scene, who was at the WRHA announcement this afternoon, an update on the timelines regarding this reorganization of emergency rooms and hospital resources here in the city of Winnipeg. He's Tristan Field-Jones in for Vacationing Brett McGarry. I'm Greg Mackling. Thank you for tuning in to Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. In case you're just tuning in, the lead story in our news this half hour, CFL, legendary CFL coach Don Matthews has passed away at the age of 77. Jeff Courier will join us in a few moments to share with us some stories about a man that a lot of people just called Coach that in just a few minutes. Before we do that, we want to welcome uh, Global's Keith McCullough. As we mentioned right off the top of the program, it's a crazy, busy news day, and Keith McCullough is at the heartbeat of one of those news stories, and that is the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority announcing details into the reorganization, the reassignment of services at Winnipeg's hospitals. And Keith, uh, you got some uh, fairly detailed information for us, I understand. Well, a little bit of a timeline here, Greg, in terms of when these changes and in fact, really all of us who live in the city of Winnipeg are going to start to roll out on October 3rd. Uh, so this fall, October 3rd is really the day to circle on the calendar as sort of the big first day. That's when the plan is to close the emergency room at the Victoria Hospital and also close the urgent care center that exists right now. Uh, at Misericordia. So that's sort of phase one. And then phase two would be, if you flip the calendar, we're talking spring, summer of 2018. So, you know, starting about one year from right now, that's when the emergency rooms at Seven Oaks and Concordia uh, would be closed. And also, 
hopefully if construction goes uh, according to plan, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, uh, a new emergency room should be ready to open at Grace Hospital. So we know three ERs are going to close. Victoria is going to be first coming in October. And then no specific dates, but sometime spring, summer 2018, uh, that's when we're looking at uh, the emergency rooms closing uh, at Concordia and at uh, Seven Oaks Hospital. Keith, was there at least an acknowledgement that the ERs at Seven Oaks and at Concordia could not close until the Grace Hospital ER and all the changes there and renovations are complete? It certainly sounds, Greg, like they've done a lot of homework here in terms of, okay, what should be the order? Which domino uh, has to fall first? They looked at where people go for care and where some of the services are and what's easiest to transfer to where and staff and all that stuff. And that's how they sort of settled on doing Victoria first in terms of the three emergency rooms uh, that will be closed. Uh, In terms of the exact order of grace opening seven oaks closing concordia closing or would that shuffle around a little bit those specifics haven't really been worked out because they also have to expand some services at hsc and st boniface in terms of those emergency departments so there's there's a lot still up in the air i think especially greg with that second part but i think you're probably fair in saying they wouldn't want to close both Concordia and Seven Oaks, and then have to wait another three months because of construction delays at Grace Hospital, and suddenly they could be in a sticky situation there. So I think it's probably fair that they want to make sure that the Grace is open, that Grace is up and running, that everything's going well in terms of how did it work when we closed Victoria down uh, before they look at closing those other two. My understanding is it's likely that Seven Oaks would be the last one to close, so Concordia would be before Seven Oaks, but they could be uh, pretty close together. And the other thing here, guys, is staffing too, right? And there's a lot of people in the healthcare system whose jobs could be affected uh, by this. They're sticking to sort of the party line here at WRHA headquarters that every healthcare worker who wants a job in the system will still have one. So they're not going to be mass job cuts or anything like that. But beyond that, things get a little bit more complicated. Everyone might still have a job, but there'll be a lot of people who will be needing to move to a different job, to a different department, maybe to a different hospital, to different shifts. So there's a whole bunch of that that I think is sort of starting to be worked out here behind the scenes. Obviously, there's unions involved and things like that. I asked if they could give me a percentage of healthcare workers who might have to have some upheaval at least, move to some sort of different department. They couldn't give a specific number, but they did say that that would be significant. So obviously uh, there's a lot there to work out in terms of who needs to work where, who can keep their exact job, and in a lot of cases, where are some of these nurses and doctors and specialists going to need to be moved to try and make sure that the system does start working better because that's the whole goal here, right, guys, to, to reduce wait times and to, to get the, the healthcare system in Manitoba working a little bit more efficiently than it than it has been up until now. Uh, Keith, you touched on it briefly about how some places like at HSC and St. Boniface, they need to look at expanding their services uh, and pouring more resources into those hospitals. Did they go into a little bit of detail as to what those changes would look like? Well, there'll be certain departments that are changing and transferring at Tristan. So it's you know, mental health patients are moving from one place to another and there'll be more diagnostic testing done at at certain places. But St. Boniface is certainly a big one. It's going to need to have some capacity beefed up 
particularly in sort of the intensive care and emergency department to potentially shoulder a little bit more of that load. So I think that's something to watch. There's going to be some upfront costs there too, of course, to do some work at the emergency room at St. Boniface in particular to make sure that it's able to uh, to handle the demand here. Another thing that's interesting, guys, is the uh, protocols for ambulance drivers, for paramedics, they're going to get a little bit of a review done there because it's becoming even more important now to make sure that people are being taken to the right facility. And we know paramedics are already trained to say, okay, your injury is this serious. We're going to take you right to right to HSC, but it's, it's going to be even more important as we move forward to make sure, okay, this is urgent care level serious. This is emergency room uh, level serious. So that's something that, that is also going to be going on probably even before next fall is sort of a review with paramedics uh, into how all that works. And then, of course, there's educating the rest of us. There's educating you guys and me and then the general public about where they should be going moving forward. So look for some some advertisements, be it on radio or television or in print moving forward and some sort of public engagement to be coming out. I think it's fair to say if you're listening right now, you're going to start getting inundated in the months ahead with reminders of this emergency room's closing. If this is wrong with you, this is where you should be going. Because really, I mean, you guys know this, none of this really works if you don't get buy-in from the public to go where they're supposed to go and not go to an emergency room if they're not supposed to, or at least knowing that if they show up at seven Oaks or Victoria or Concordia two years from now, uh, there's not going to be an emergency room there for them. So getting the public on side, certainly a big, big aspect of this. And it sounds like, uh, the health authority is, is certainly aware of that. And on top of that too. Oh, and certainly the government will have a bit of an uphill battle because, uh, uh, well, Greg, I know for sure for the last few months we've heard from some of the unions involved in this. They've had a couple ads on here, uh, and obviously they don't seem to be too happy with closing the emergency rooms. So the government's going to have to really push hard to try and sell this to Manitobans from that perspective. There's been a public and, ca- campaign, uh, keep the Concordia ER open, right. Keith. If you travel Henderson Highway, you'll see dozens of signs, election-style uh, campaign signs on the lawns of individuals' homes on on uh, Henderson Highway in particular. And mm-hmm. and what about Misericordia, the urgent care? You mentioned the closing date there, Keith. Uh, to me, that might be the biggest hole in the plan. I'm an overall fan of what they're trying to do here, but I, the, the idea that this uh, urgent care centre at Misericordia is closing is something that I can't wrap my head, head around. Was there anything specific asked about Concordia and whether or not that might be reconsidered? Yeah, the, the Miz did come up, Greg, Lori Lamont, who's uh, one of the, the big cheese over at the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, touched on that. And, and she hasn't been able to say much, and no one really has about that, because there's been a blackout period while the by-election was going on in Point Douglas. But uh, the position, I think, of the health authority is that they understand that was an important place for people. But it wasn't being used necessarily all that much. And they feel like the people who were using Misericordia Urgent Care came from all different parts of town. And now that there's going to be, you know, a handful of other urgent care centers within the city, that people aren't going to miss, I guess, enough the Misericordia. That there's going to be, what I'm trying to say, guys, is that there's going to be other places 
for those people to go. But we've, you know, we've seen letters from the doctors who work there who say don't close this down. So you're right, Greg. I think that'll be one of those tests where if we're talking and looking back on this a year from now, it's one of those hurdles that I think could potentially be a pitfall for this plan. Well, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how that works out. Again, October 3rd is the date to remember. That's when the plan is to close that urgent care at Misericordia. It'll be converted largely to what's called the Community IV Clinic. So we'll have to get some more details on that. We know they do a lot of eye care stuff at Misericordia now, and that will continue as well. And it's interesting you mentioned the unions too, just quickly, Tristan. Throughout this, uh, the past few months, there have been forums going on with healthcare workers at different facilities across the city and the the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority acknowledged a lot of people are freaked out about this. A lot of frontline workers are freaked out about this. They understand the system might need some improvements, but whenever you come into, you know, my backyard and tell me I might have to find a, a new job at a new hospital, it's concerning. So you're right. It's not just an uphill battle with, with the three of us and the general public. It's with the people who do this work in our healthcare system too. It's a huge, huge plan, guys. It's generational. We've never seen this before in Manitoba. So, you know, this is this is in a perfect world, the dates that have been set to roll this stuff out. But I think it's fair to say we can expect a whole number of variables to come into play. It's all very fluid. It's one of those situations, guys, where, you know, we're not really going to know whether it works in, until we try it. And then it'll probably still take a few years after that to really say, wow, this was a positive or geez, we might have we might have messed up a little bit here. Only really time will tell how this plan rolls out and how it ends up working for Manitobans in the, the days and years ahead. Brian Pallister saying there was no turning back from this plan re-emphasizes his commitment to this. Keith McCullough, Global News, thank you very much for uh, bringing us the news from WRHA today. Anytime, guys. Thank you. October 3rd, Misericordia Urgent Care Clinic will close. I find it bizarre that the first domino in this series of things that need to be happening is a closure versus a conversion from, say, Seven Oaks from an emergency room to an urgent care. So you're going to be without one resource that goes unreplaced Mm -hmm. until uh, at least spring-summer of 2018. Uh, These are the sorts of things, in my opinion, that can cause the public to turn on a plan that I think a lot of people are feeling pretty good about, at least in terms of, well, at least we're trying to do something, we're doing something dramatic here, but we're going to be six months minimum without one of the facilities that we've come to rely on. Yeah, and and time will tell for sure on that aspect. A real quick note here, Greg, just want to point this out. Already we're getting some reaction from people. Just got a notice from the NDP saying their health critic, Matt Weeb is going to be available for interviews, so we'll be staying tuned for the NDP's reaction to that. And I fully expect to hear lots from the unions and lots from uh, a lot of the people in the healthcare field as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the fallout is to this announcement. We've got a forecast update. We'll update uh, weather conditions as they sit currently and then jeff courier long time saskatchewan rough rider broadcaster uh, you love him here in winnipeg uh, very good friends with don matthews if you've missed the news don matthews has passed away at the age of 77 jeff will join us in just a few moments to share with us some of his best don matthews stories and remembrances here on 680 cjob we did not have the opportunity or honor to visit with jeff courier before our show this afternoon uh, but the, as fate would have it, 
We're bringing Jeff to speak with us now as it's uh, one fifty-two on this Wednesday afternoon. And Jeff, uh, condolences to you. I know Don Matthews uh, was a friend of yours. Yeah, he, he, and in an odd sort of way, it, as much as anybody can claim to be a friend of Don Matthews, I guess he was a, a very different guy. A tough guy to get to know, tough guy to get close to, but uh, one of the great coaches ever in the Canadian Football League. And Don has passed away at age 77. He's been in ill health for for quite some time. Ten Grey Cup appearances, five Grey Cup victories, 231 wins. He he won won ten Grey Cups, five as an assistant coach on Hugh Campbell's staff on that Eskimo dynasty. So he has ten Grey Cup rings? Yeah, five as a head coach, five as an assistant. Wow. And went to a couple more. So uh, an incredible resume. He was on that great Eskimo coaching staff with Cal Murphy and uh, that was headed up by Hugh Campbell. That Ray won five, Yeah, that won five straight Grey Cups uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. So uh, Don what, Matthews what, was... What was it about Don Matthews? Uh, Jeff, sorry to interrupt well, you there. That, that you know, uh, players love playing for him, but he could be a cantankerous kind of oh, soul. Oh, yeah. There was, no, there was never a question about who was in charge. I mean, that was that was real clear, and that's true for all good head coaches. Uh, I think one of the things that made Don a good head coach is that he uh, he never let emotion get in the way of decisions, and that's what's made Wally Buono as great as he is too. That Wally Buono, for example, has has cut a, a lot of great players who've won for him. I mean, you know, Wally Buono cut Kelvin Anderson, who's a Hall of Famer, cut Alan Pitts. Don Matthews knew when it was time to let somebody go, and he would not let emotion get in the way of it. And his deal was, look, you can play for me until I find somebody better. That's, and that's the deal. And that started from day one, the, yeah. the, the first game you were in the lineup. Yeah. The, you're talking about uh, Wally Buono and Don Matthews, and there are others that have the philosophy, it's it's better to cut a guy a year too soon than a year too late. Yeah, and, and not very often did either Don Matthews or Wally Buono cut somebody who went on to play productively elsewhere. What will Don Matthews be most remembered for, Jeff? Winning, I think, and and a personality that was... Uh, he had a, a tough relationship with a lot of media people. Um, he did not get along well with a lot of the media people, and so the, he had a reputation for being difficult and cantankerous. But it was my experience with Don that if you showed up every day and we're trying to upgrade your knowledge as a media guy, try to learn more about the game, and we're doing your job professionally, that he was there and he would provide information for you. I learned more about the X's and O's and the execution of football from Don Matthews than any other coach I was around. Uh, You've got a great story about that. Are you willing to share that with us? Uh, We've got a couple of minutes still, so I would love to hear. Just in terms of how... I think you earned your stripes yeah. with him, and therefore he he, he well, was willing to give you time yeah, to was, and invested time in you as a, as a broadcaster yeah. and as a as a football guy. Yeah, and this is a guy who is known for being cantankerous with the media, and yet uh, this was not my experience. And I don't think Bob Irving had ever bad experiences with him. Bob never covered a team full time that Don was the head coach of, but but I did in, in Saskatchewan. And day before a game. Uh, we're just doing the, the interviews that are going to run on game day the next day. And he said, uh, everybody else had left. And he said, I got something for you. If the, I can't even remember who they were playing. He said, if their first punt is on their own side of midfield, we've got a punt block on. And he drew it up for me on a piece of paper telling me what to watch for. And he said, tell your color guy that this is what you can watch for. 
Well, I mean, that is absolute gold, of course, for a broadcaster to have that kind of inside knowledge. But it meant that he, it meant that he trusted that I wasn't going to divulge that information to anybody. And so I, I had a very good relationship with Don and, and never had – early in his first full year there, we had a bit of an issue. And he came to me and he said, Jeff, do we have a problem? I said, well, I think we do, coach. And so we, we talked it out. This was after practice. Walked into his office, talked it out some more, shook hands, and that was the end of it. It was never spoken of again. It never impacted our relationship. We dealt with it like two grown-ups and moved on. I thought, well, here's a guy I can deal with. Now, he was not a humble man. There's no question. Don was not a humble man. Uh, but when you win as often as he did, sure, uh, you know, it's... No apologies for yeah, that. He was a great defensive coach, a superior special teams coach, and let his offensive coordinators coach the offense. He, he said, I don't know much about offense. Let his offensive coaches do that. He knew to surround himself with great people. Jeff Courier, thank you for sharing that with us. You've yeah. shared in the newsroom some amazing stories over the years about your time in, in Saskatchewan, in particular covering the Canadian Football League and the Rough Riders, and uh, we appreciate you taking us behind the veil this afternoon. Yeah, thanks. Once again, Don Matthews yeah. has uh, passed away at Don, the age of 77. Just Don Matthews brought Jim Pop into the CFL back in Saskatchewan days, and that turned out okay. Not bad at all. Yeah, for the league. He could find uh, talent yeah. on plenty yeah. of levels. Uh, Jeff Courier joining uh, Mackling and Field Jones this afternoon. Lo and behold, just as we're talking about the possibility of changing sky and changing weather conditions, we are starting to get pictures from all over southern mm-hmm. Manitoba that would prove that things are changing in certain locales. Tristan Field Jones in for a vacationing. Brett McGarry, I'm Greg Mackling. And Tristan, what are you seeing there on uh, some of the text messages? And thank you, by yeah. the way, for a sending us pictures. And please do it safely. We don't want you to endanger yourself or break any laws taking pictures. Certainly. Please make sure you're pulled over. We don't want you uh, using your handheld device and driving uh, in any type of weather, let alone when the weather has turned bad. Tristan, what yep. are you seeing? We're just looking at Morris here, seeing a couple of dark rain clouds and looks like a downpour in the distance there. Got another one here from Adam. He says, just west of Winkler, eight-minute difference. One picture is a nice rainbow. The next one, it looks like it's pouring rain there. Uh, and then we're seeing a, uh, another picture here of showing east and west. It looks like east. There's some storm clouds brewing there, too. Uh, if you do, again, there is that severe thunderstorm watch out in effect. I uh, haven't heard of anything severe yet, but it does look like it's clouding over a bit. Uh, if you do see anything, feel free to text us if it's safe to do so, 204-780-6868. If you have any pictures of what you're seeing out there, feel free to let us know, and uh, we'll uh, certainly make a note of that. And again, we're getting some great pictures already, so 204-780-6868. If you want to text us what you're seeing out there, we'll be happy to see what you see. Now, Brett McGarry's on a little bit of a staycation slash golf mm-hmm. vacation. Have you ever heard, Tristan, of a runcation? No, I haven't. Well? You, I don't do a lot of running on my vacations, usually. You might want to reconsider that. Okay. Based on the information we're about to uh, enjoy here from our friend uh, Kevin Young and Trevor uh, Sluchuk, first-time visitor to 680 CGOB. Diabetes Canada, there's an information night next Wednesday to find out about how you can join Team Diabetes. Kevin, a regular contributor on the program here. Kevin, always great to, to see you. What is and, and, and what can you tell us about Team Diabetes, my friend? Well, uh, Greg, thanks for having us again. Uh, uh, First of all, Team Diabetes is the national activity fundraising program for Diabetes Canada. And basically what that means is that uh, 
we use that program, uh, Team Diabetes, that is, to uh, raise funds um, uh, across the country uh, internationally. So uh, that being said, we encourage people who uh, like to travel. We have some amazing destinations available. Um, my good friend Trevor is going to uh, share some of that information with you. But uh, it's unbelievable, the opportunities. And it says here, and this is appealing to me, people of all fitness levels and from all walks of life can train to walk or run full or half marathons or shorter distance races at exciting Canadian and international Destination. So can you tie that all together for us, Kev, and, and how that works? For sure I can. Uh, you, you know, you don't have to be a marathon runner to take part in this team diabetes. Uh, uh, ultimately, the ability to walk uh, is more than, uh, and Trevor will actually cover a couple of options. Uh, in some instances, uh, there are um, uh, varied options, like three different hikes that you can go on, uh, or you can run a marathon. Uh, so it, it encompasses everybody's abilities uh, and allows uh, people to participate where at the level they're comfortable at. You've piqued my interest because I'm not particularly athletic and I don't do a lot of running. So if I'm one of those couch potatoes, essentially, what uh, what, what are some options for me? So definitely. Um, we have a an event that takes place in India where you can cycle 450 kilometers over five days. Well, that sounds like right up your alley, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we also have uh, some mountain hikes in, in some of our locations like Ireland or uh, shorter run, di- run distances in the Caribbean. Uh, the, I think that's one of our, our coolest ones coming up. Uh, in the Cayman Islands, you get five, uh, five stop destinations over five days. You hit San, San Juan, St. Martin, St. Kitts, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Lucia. And you can, hit a, you can do a 5K every day or one day, all of them, whatever you want. It's up to you. And the rest of the time, you're on a boat cruising the Caribbean. Okay, this has got to oh, cost a go. fortune. It, actually, no, that's the beauty of it. To be honest with you, uh, what we uh, the the idea behind Team Diabetes. I mean, since its inception, we've raised thirty six million dollars through this program since the year two thousand. So, uh, and you know what, that was my initial thought too, when I joined uh, the team at Diabetes Canada was uh, that this must be a a really large sum. But Trevor, uh, share with everybody what the the normal uh, figures are. Yeah. So uh, on on average, most of our destinations uh, take about $6,500 of fundraising for a person to get uh, to, to travel with us. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of a lot of money to fundraise, but we have uh, all kinds of resources and different tools to help support people uh, in their fundraising. So we have like a Facebook group for all the participants across the country, uh, and participants can share their ideas. So when Joe's doing a, a golf tournament in Vancouver, you can see what uh, he's doing and, and try and, and help yourself along that way too. Okay, so now I'm real. So if I raise. $6,500 on average. It depends, yep. I guess, on the team diabetes event. Uh, I could go to Reykjavik, Iceland in August of 2018, uh, essentially through my fundraising efforts. Absolutely. That's exactly what he's trying to tell that, you. Greg. That's exactly it. Um, included in your, in, in your trip is your airfare, your hotel, all your meals, your race entry. Um, you get uh, some Team D uh, gear, like a, a jersey and that. And, uh, yeah. Okay, you send me the information, and I was reading through it. But I didn't... Greg's got a big smile on his face right now. He's the, the, his, the, the, the wheels in his head are turning right now. I've known Kev for, what, about eight months now? Yeah, and, yeah. Kev, you've never lied to me, but nope. I thought you were lying to me about this. No, 
It's not a lie, my friend. It's it's one of the best kept secrets out there, and that's why uh, I thought maybe it would be appropriate for us to come down. That's why Trevor is going to host the information night next Wednesday night at the Holiday Inn on Pembina Highway South. Um, the idea is to let people really understand how easy this really is. In Manitoba, I mean, everybody knows about socials. Uh, it's a secret outside of the province, but here we all know, and, and we can utilize that opportunity to raise funds. And uh, that, maybe a, a few private donations, and you've got this select, and you're off to the races, so to speak, uh, and uh, enjoying uh, world-class venues and activities. Okay, so Trevor, uh, now I'm going to put my pessimist hat on now. I'm, I'm going to be grumpy, Greg, for a second. Oh. I'm going to go, well, why should I support somebody else to go and do this? Why should I take money out of my pocket and my time on a Saturday night to go to a social to support Tristan so that he can look like a hero for diabetes and go to Reykjavik or the Cayman, know, to Islands. The Cayman yeah. Islands for nothing? Well, why should I do that? Well, the funds raised, uh, they support the pillars of our of our organization. Um, that's our research, our education, our, education uh, our advocacy, and our programs and services. And all the funds raised in Manitoba stay in Manitoba uh, to help us fund research projects at the universities and, and other research. And uh, it helps us with our putting on great events like our expo and our inner city health fair coming up on June 24th. So obviously I'm being a little facetious, but this is obviously a, a great way to have a, a captain like Tristan to say, hey, uh, here's the incentive for me. Come along for the ride, theoretically speaking, and together we can do something pretty special. Well, and the beauty of that is, too, that in addition to the the, the causal effect, right, you know, the, the, the good work that you're doing and the help that you're providing with diabetes awareness and with uh, uh, research and everything here in Manitoba, we're also going to provide you with a tax receipt. So, uh, you know, it's a win-win-win and uh, uh, for everybody involved. It's a win for Diabetes Canada. It's a win for people who have diabetes and are desperately uh, looking for research to end this disease. Uh, it's a win for education, advocacy, and it all stays here at home. I, I'm just looking through some of these other destinations. I know we touched on a few of them, but a couple others that are really interesting. Mention Vienna, Austria, mention uh, Tanzania. I mean, there's Dublin, Ireland. It's called Tanzania, Tristan. Tanzania? <laughs> what did I say? I don't know. You didn't uh, say that. Okay. Just... So Vienna, Austria is actually uh, the old world meets the new world. Uh, it's the opportunity to see, you know, the new architecture and skyscrapers uh, nestled in with the some of the old uh, uh, historic sites that are there. So Austria is a beautiful destination, Vienna itself. Um, they actually play the uh, Blue Danube Waltz as you go across the kilometer oh, along uh, uh, wow. Danube uh, River, and uh, uh, it, it goes through the United Nations, right by the United Nations complex. Um, just amazing. Uh, the opportunities that are, are exist here uh, and that's why Trevor uh, wants everybody to come to his information night, because bottom line is uh, they're going to go walk away with an armful of material and destinations. Uh, the, they may not get sleep for a week. <laughs> Tristan, when you hear something like this, is that enough to, you know, your self-admitted little bit of a coach potato? A, l a little bit. Yeah. Let's be. Yeah. Let's say it's a little bit. Trist when you hear something like this, not only. Could you support the work of Diabetes Canada, mm -hmm. inspire some other people, get uh, to work at doing a fundraiser, but get healthier yourself 
there are a lot of wins. Kevin, you used the word win three times. There might be a, a fourth win in this scenario. It may actually encourage individuals who live a less than active lifestyle to get up off the couch. Tristan, I want to take your temperature on that right now. It's very tempting. I mean, it really is. You hear about all these different locations and all the wonderful trips that are planned and the fact that it includes, I mean, airfare, hotel, meals, I mean, that sort of thing. It, it's an all-inclusive vacation, essentially, or runcation, as, as, we're, as we're referring to it as. it's For somebody like me, that, that gets me motivated because, it, you know, I know we like to think of ourselves as evolved creatures, but the reality is that when it comes to some of that psychological conditioning, if you dangle the reward in front of anybody, yeah. they'll go for it. That's right, Tristan. And, and, and that's really the important part here is that for all the good and the win-win-win-win, as Greg said, because there is that extra one there as well, the beauty here is that we've still managed to raise almost $2.1 million a year average through this program, Team Diabetes. And those funds go directly to support uh, our pillars that Trevor mentioned earlier. Well, so, we, go ahead, Kev, finish no, up your I, thought. I just, I, I just want to say um, some people be, uh, think, well, you know, uh, my donation is going to cover airfare, but... You know, uh, yeah, we got to get people there to be able to raise these funds. And it's it's not a significant sum. $6,500 is manageable, but it means that the average donation, because most of the services in that are donated on uh, location, uh, the only real uh, cost is the cost of the airfare. Uh, so, and if we could work that out, then we'd be able to donate a hundred percent of the donation to, uh, to research. So if, if you're trying to deprogram this all and, and decipher whether or not we're, we're trying to sell you a bell of goods or not you can uh, visit with trevor uh next week we'll tell you how to do that right after we update the weather in just a moment here greg mackling along with tristan field jones he's in for vacationing brett mcgarry we're talking about how you can join team diabetes no we don't want you to get diabetes we want you to fight diabetes and you can have an adventure of a lifetime and doing so we'll tell you more about that when we come back the tens manian devil that's what i was thinking that's what you were thinking about i don't even remember what i said it doesn't matter i'm gonna call it tasmania from now on <laughs> tasmania sure i think that would be a, a, a very fun place to go sure tasmania we're talking about how you can join team diabetes and visit places like tasmania tanzania well, Tasmania is not on the list right now, but I'm sure it was once upon a t- time or maybe in the future. We're talking about how you can travel the world and support the work of the Canadian Diabetes Diabetes Canada. Our friend Kevin Young and Trevor Sluchuk is here for the very first time. Diabetes Canada, of course, the fundraising arm that does so much work in order to to enable research on this disease, Kev, that is growing at a dramatic rate here in our country. Uh, we could be on the verge of a genuine crisis here as it pertains to diabetes, if we're not already there. You know what, Greg? I think we are already there. We're, we've reached epidemic levels. I mean, right now there are 11 million Canadians who either have diabetes or prediabetes, and uh, that's uh, over 30%, almost one in three Canadians. Uh, that's an epidemic number, and uh, it's time that we get real serious about this. We are, our, we have some research that is happening right now that is uh, have some amazing initial results, and we just need to keep the dollars coming and keep the research going because we could be getting real close. 
in, uh, to uh, uh, making a huge difference in some of the, uh, uh, with this disease. So, and it's not just the disease itself; it's the side effects. It's the the mm-hmm. neuropathy that goes along with this. Mm-hmm. Some great work uh, being done by uh, now a friend of mine, Dr. Paul Fernie, who over at St. Boniface that mm-hmm. that's uh, invented a topical cream that he hopes that will help with neuropathy mm-hmm. eventually. So, yes, you're right. The momentum is building. But you have to come up with creative ways to fundraise because, let's face it, there's a ton of competition out there. There's no secret. For uh, charitable dollars, people have lots of places and lots of causes that they can choose to support. And, uh, Trevor, you're giving us a, an excellent excuse to consider joining Team Diabetes. You've got an information night coming up next week. Tell us all about it and how folks can uh, join you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next Wednesday, June 21st at 7 o'clock at the Holiday Inn South, 1330 Pembina Highway. Uh, we'll be having an information session so people can learn about how they can go to uh, all our destinations, uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, India, um, Vienna, Austria, Iceland, Ireland, Tanzania. Uh, next month in July, we have uh, 20 people going to hike the Amalfi Coast in Italy. And in May, we had 30 people who went to China and did a marathon on the Great Wall of China. you, you got to tell us a little bit more about that one, because that sounds fascinating. H- How many people H- from Manitoba did that? Uh, there were two people from Manitoba. What an incredible... How did that go? Like how, I, I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, China is not always the most accessible place. And there have even been reports, I remember when uh, the Olympics were in Beijing uh, a few years ago, with some of the Canadian media that was there had, t- had trouble even just filming the Great Wall of China. But I just, I have to know, like, how did that whole marathon go on, on the Great Wall? Well, it's all part of the, the Beijing Marathon, and they run a section of the, of the marathon on the Great Wall. Uh, and it's actually a very hilly up and down. You go up the stairs on the wall and then down the stairs. So uh, you have to do a lot of training to, to manage that one because it's it's a, a lot harder than uh, a flat marathon. We have about 90 seconds here. So one more time, Trevor, how can people join you and uh, get the information? Come down in person to your information night coming up next Wednesday. Uh, and so uh, Wednesday, June 21st, uh, 7 p.m., Holiday in South, 1330 Pembina Highway. If you can't make it out that night, you can give me a call at my office at 204-925-6191. Leave me a message, and I will always get back to you with uh, some personalized information about how you can travel the world with us. Fantastic. And do you want people to register for this meeting on Wednesday? Uh, if, if they could, yeah, that'd be that'd be fantastic. Um, uh Trevor underscore or Trevor dot Sluchuk, uh, so that's T R E V O R dot S L Y W C H U K at diabetes dot C A or GMAC at cjob.com, and I'll connect you with uh, Trevor or with Kevin. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate your time this afternoon. I'm inspired and, uh, Please connect us with uh, some individuals that have done these adventures over the next few weeks uh, so that we can uh, help spread the word and uh, the benefits of joining Team Diabetes. Thanks, fellas. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Tristan Field-Jones standing by. He's got the latest global news and weather, and we'll start our traffic reports in about eight, nine minutes right here on 680 CJOB. I'm Greg. He's Tristan in for vacation, Brett McGarry. Once again, thank you for all your pictures at 780-6868. We appreciate your update on the weather situation wherever you are. If you can do so safely, we'd love your pictures. It allows us to keep up to date, up to the minute as to what's happening where you are, and therefore we can warn others uh, about the weather that's coming. You know, radar's good, Tristan, mm. but uh, the naked eye is sometimes a little bit better. What, Absolutely. What did our parents say? Uh, well, what's the weather like? Look out the window. <laughs> you, know, you want to know what the weather's like? Just... 
take a look out the front door. Yeah, we had a couple people who yesterday we talked a little bit about this too. We had a few people who said their grandparents would tell them the exact same thing. Well, you want the weather? Just look out the window. Okay, all right. <laughs> We're trying to predict what's coming for the city of Winnipeg and uh, areas around in our, our listening area. Uh, thanks to our guests this afternoon. We've had a jam-packed jam program. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to talk about something that uh, caught your attention uh, just before we came on the air, in fact. This comes from the National Post, and here's the headline. This lonely drifting tanker carrying two million barrels nobody wants to buy sums up Global's oil struggle. Tell about this. This is a, I think this is a fascinating story. And, uh, and I hearken back to when I was in elementary school and in high school as well, we all learned about what they referred to as peak oil. Did you just re- use the word hearken? I guess I did. Yes. <laughs> Has that not been used in the last 30 years? Oh no, I just, I feel like I want to light a pipe or something and have sure. you tell me a story as you hearken back. Have some back. old timey 1920s music playing in the yeah, background. absolutely. When peak, I, back in my day, you see. <laughs> way, way back in the 1990s, you see. Um, there's something called peak oil. Well, and, and we learned a little bit about that when we had our sort of uh, natural history and geography classes about how they were telling us in the, in the not so distant future of 2005 or 2010 or whatever it may be, oil was going to start declining and we would have oil shortages and it would be a big big issue and it would change all of our lives. One of CIBC's master economists, Jeffrey Rubin, wrote a book about $200 a barrel oil that never came to fruition. And yet here we are in 2017, uh, we're years after peak oil was supposed to have happened anyway, where there is an oil tanker uh, that's just floating right now, uh, I believe just south of the Canary Islands, it's off the coast of Africa, and it's got 2 million barrels of oil it's 330 meters long, so triple the tallest building here in Winnipeg, for comparison. It's a massive ship. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How long is this ship? This ship is 330 meters long. It is taller than any skyscraper in Canada, as a matter of fact. Okay. Yeah. So is I, it what the Richardson building and uh, 201, they're about 330 feet uh, I think they're a bit, they're a little taller. A little taller. I think Mid- they're 120 meters roughly. Okay. But again, so this, so just imagine this oil Three tanker times. about almost triple the height of these buildings. Holy man. That's how it can hold 2 million barrels. And what happens is. Keep fascinating me, Tristan. <laughs> that's part of my job, Greg. Um, and the thing is that this ship is just sitting out there. It's got 2 million barrels. China isn't interested in it. And they've tried to find buyers for it, uh, and 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 they're saying that uh, they had to. They're trying to bring it all the way back to Scotland to try and get it transferred, try to get the oil to tra- to transfer to another ship. And they're saying there haven't been any takers. Nobody wants this oil. Who would have thought in 2017, in the na- in an age when we were all told about the upcoming energy crisis yep. and the upcoming shortage of oil, and how many. You know, how many books and films and TV shows and even video games have been written about the oil crisis that was supposed to hit? And yet in 2017, we have a gigantic super tanker sitting in the Atlantic Ocean with two million barrels of oil and nobody wants it. Maybe we should get it to Churchill. Oh, there you go. Maybe we have a solution for the part of the problem that they may be facing up at our northern port in Churchill. This is this is really kooky. Could you imagine? Are there people on the ship? Oh, it must be manned. They're they're crew for sure. They must have a crew, right? Yeah, I don't know how many people would be on something like that, but it's just they. And and I mean, the article kind of goes into a a, a more in depth about why you know that there's you know why why we've had so much oil recently. But 
it, it's, it's fascinating how many times throughout history, from at least my perspective anyway, the, the way I see it, where we've had these grand predictions. And they're... They're so far off. And they're so far. And, and, and here's the thing, like the peak oil, by the way, was not a conspiracy theory. It was not a it was not some fringe element. It was pretty widely accepted for a while that peak oil was going to happen. Not you know, it certainly had its criticisms. But ultimately, I know I was taught uh, at least in school. We learned a little bit about it. And I know a lot of other people it was the same thing. And so we were all bracing for this energy crisis. And yet. Here we are, 2017, and this oil glut has been happening for years, and there's no sign of it coming to an end anytime soon. You know what the lesson is in all this? Don't believe everything you were taught in school. <laughs> don't believe predictions. That's the, that's, that's the lesson. Don't believe any predictions, <laughs> including weather. No, 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 no. <laughs> Someone told me. If you're a Nickelback fan, you'll know that that is Hero, the collaboration that was marketed as Chad Kruger's solo debut, but he was not the only voice on the song, and he did not write it by himself. In fact, he sang vocals with another Canadian frontman. You heard him there. I'll play it again. voice is that who does the other voice belong to in this clip 204-780-6868 if you want to go and see Nickelback at the downtown arena what is it Bell MTS Place is that what they call it I think that's what it's going to be called, yes. Yeah. It's going to take them a few months before they get the proper signage. Yeah, but, there, we, but I think they're calling it that now. Yeah. It just doesn't have the Or the And Bell MTS Iceplex as well, I think. That is correct. Yeah. Very good. Uh, by the way, speaking of uh, hockey-type uh, stuff, Keith McCullough and I will be on the air on Sunday at noon. The list of protected players by National Hockey League teams, will be released to the public. I think Ooh. it's 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Nice. These are the t- players that will be eligible for the Las Vegas Golden Knights to select as they move into the 2017-2018 season, their initial season in the National Hockey League. Speculation about which Winnipeg Jets will be available. Each team can only lose one player. Each team will lose at least one player and only one player. Uh, Keith McCullough and I will uh, cover that for you 12 until 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And, of course, don't forget the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in action tomorrow night right here on 680 CJOB. Unless you're in the stadium, that's the only place you can catch it. The voice of the Blue Bombers, Bob Irving and uh, Doug Brown, will have uh, complete coverage for you starting at uh, 6 o'clock tomorrow night here I, on 680 CGOB. I have to ask for the Sunday sports show, Greg. Mm. What is worse uh, f- for you guys, the fact that each team has to lose a player or the fact that you have to say Vegas Golden Knights multiple times within an hour? Uh, Vegas Golden Knights. <laughs> That's not even the name of the city. You know, I, I See, I didn't mind... It's a nickname for the name of the city. I didn't mind Golden Knights as a name. I yeah, thought that was cool. okay. Yeah. But calling them the Vegas Golden Knights? Mm, kind of odd. No, thank you. Yeah, for sure. And not, not to mention expanding to add another team to the NHL, I don't think was the wisest decision. But oh, why anyway. do you say that, Tristan? You have an opinion on everything. I, I do have an opinion on everything. I just think, and I'm, I'm very much a casual hockey fan, but mm-hmm. I just think that, like, is, is, we want, do we not want quality over quantity? 
Hockey's never been better, brother. True, but never but it, been it's, better. It, it just I'm I'm concerned about them diluting the product. The and officiating, frankly, on the other hand, that, might not be very well. Good. And, and frankly, I'd like to see more teams in Canada. I mean, I don't know why we keep expanding these teams. Where, where would these, you like to see uh, teams in Canada? Uh, you said plural. Uh, outside of Quebec City, where else? Well, yeah. Do you think they could support a national hockey team? I think Quebec, C- Quebec City for sure. Uh, I would put one in Hamilton. They don't have an arena, man. That's oh, a five hundred million dollar question. Yeah, they can't okay. even sort out the hundred million dollar stadium that they they just built. They can't figure out how to uh, get a soccer team in there. So uh, there's nobody there to to buy a team. It's a big mm. big investment. Winnipeg got very lucky. Sure, yeah. timing is everything in life and in business and all other things. If you wanted to buy a team or buy an expansion team. 500 million U.S. dollars minimum, and to rebuild MTS Center would cost about $300 million. Oh, yes. They spent, what was it, close to $600 million in Edmonton to build uh, Rogers Arena there, Rogers Place, whatever they call it? I think it was, I can't remember if that was the entire project, including like the plazas, or if it was just the stadium. I thought the stadium itself was $400 million, but when you look at everything surrounding, I could be wrong. Doesn't matter. It's a lot big of money. Chunk, big chunk of change. Jeffrey Forte, do we have a winner? Do we have somebody going to see Nickelback? We sure do. Chris Cormier. Chris, congratulations. He knew the trivia question answer. He knew that this was the former head man or lead man from Saliva. His name is Josie Scott. Congratulations. One more time, Jeff. Who's the winner? Chris Cormier. Chris Cormier. Congratulations. We've got uh, weather and sports coming up next. Stick. Lock it in and stick it in. 680 CJOB. Earlier this afternoon, Keith McCullough joined us. From the W, you can play a little bit of that music if you want. Keep it going there, Jeff. Uh, Keith McCullough joined us to tell us that the WRCA had, after their announcement earlier this year, their plan to modify how hospitals and ERs are used across the city. They gave us some more details today. And Victoria Hospital Emergency Department is slated to be shut down and converted to an urgent care facility in October of this year. That emergency room currently sees 88 patients a day on average. The WRHA made the announcement this afternoon in a conference that revealed more detail into the complete overhaul of the province's healthcare system. In that announcement, it was also announced that uh, the urgent care facility at Misericordia Hospital would close October 3rd, I believe, is the date that Keith McCullough gave us. And that had me wondering. We didn't have an opportunity to talk about it. We haven't had a chance for open lines at all today. Yeah, it's been such a packed day. It really has. You can send us a text message on this, though. Have your concerns been quelled? Have you softened your stance at all? If you were against the reorganization of emergency rooms across the city and the way that these facilities would be used and utilized. Has your confidence in this plan been bolstered, reaffirmed since it was announced, or are you more concerned than ever? I've stated that the overall plan makes a lot of sense to me. The one part of this decision that I am vehemently against is the idea, uh, the last one, the last announcement that we just shared with you, the fact that Misericordia will be shutting down its urgent care facility. I have had nothing 
but excellent experiences with Misericordia Urgent Care, an opportunity, a facility that eliminates the need for an emergency room visit. It is that genuine bridge between an emergency room and a visit to your family physician, in my opinion. And I just don't understand why they're closing it. Uh, They say that's not used necessarily by the people in that neighborhood. Yeah, but what about the people in the neighborhood that do use it? That Wolseley area, that downtown area, those are people that are going to be less likely to have transportation to now to go to the urgent care centers that will be located at Victoria Hospital and eventually at Seven Oaks Hospital, Tristan. Well, and and you know, I have to wonder again. I I'm hardly an expert when it comes to healthcare planning, so there's people here who are way smarter than I am uh, who plan these sorts of things. But I I just and and when it comes to major projects, I know this might be a bit apples and oranges, but on, for instance, the city. Anytime there's a major project, maybe when it comes to their community centers or when it comes to infrastructure or whatever it may be, they'll have open houses around there, and they'll have people who who provide feedback. Did the province at any point when they reorganized their healthcare system, I know they, they there was some research done on this and they had a, they had a plan. Online surveys. There was a, a lot of online uh, surveying of Manitobans, a lot of uptake on those surveys, but no, no open they, houses. They have, because open, I, I mean, online surveys are good, but sometimes you need that face-to-face conversation and that billboard and that, that poster to, to you show know you. know what? I'm going to correct myself. That is not true. They did have consultations throughout the province. There were at least two in Winnipeg and around uh, rural Manitoba as well. Not Maybe not necessarily on these exact changes, but mm-hmm. they have been holding, and we've been talking about them here on 680CGB, giving them publicity to invite people to feedback about your feelings on emergency rooms and the way services are delivered. So, you know, I, I apologize. I had forgotten about that, and as mm-hmm. you were talking okay. about it, I was nodding my head in agreement with you, but I realized, no, the province had has had face-to-face meetings and invited people to come and speak and, and to visit with them. So uh, the consultation process, you can call it flawed, you can call it excellent somewhere in between, uh, but this is, this is really the only issue I have with this plan moving forward is the fact that Misericordia, it, it's kind of right in the heart of the city. It's right in between HSC and St. Boniface. So maybe those ERs can pick up the slack, but the idea of the urgent care is to alleviate the stress on the ERs because if you're going to urgent care, it's because you don't need ER, but it's urgent enough that you can't wait to see your family physician if you in fact have one, which is of course another whole other can of worms. Yeah, I don't. I, again, like I said, this is some of this stuff is way above my pay grade. But it's, yeah, it, you have issues. You, you look at the plan. You have questions about the plan, especially when it comes to misericordia. But they did consult with people. They have a plan. I mean, I don't know, Greg. It's it's. It was god awful the way it's been. Oh, sure. Oh, Completely absolutely. Something had to be unacceptable done. the and, way it's been for decades. And that's one of the things that kind of annoys me when I hear, you know, some of the ads on CGOB or some of the people saying they're shutting down emergency rooms. That's going to be a catastrophe. Well, yes, they are shutting down emergency rooms, but it's not quite that simple. There's a rationale behind it. There's reasoning behind it. And and I can't stand conversation where you just take the first sentence of what you read and then you choose to go with that instead of looking into the details. There's a reason why they're doing these changes. I mean, frankly, a lot of these changes are needed. I think you could argue that the way emergency room care has been delivered for the last several years is that's been a catastrophe. Certainly. And so something needed to change. They are changing 
uh, something and uh, want to get your feedback. Are you impressed with the changes? Have your fears been allayed in any way? Or are you more concerned than ever? Send us a text, 780-6868, or you can send me an email, gmac at cgob.com. And is it just straight tristan at yep. cgob.com? We'd love to get your feedback and we can share those emails and those comments. Uh, tomorrow when we reconvene at 1 o'clock. Just a quick weather note, that weather warning that was in effect, severe thunderstorm warning uh, for the southeastern corner of uh, Manitoba has now ended. Those are watches, but now we have a severe thunderstorm warning for a little bit further north of eastern Manitoba. That's Bassett, Victoria Beach, Nopaming Provincial Park, and Pine Falls. There is a severe thunderstorm warning, which means those conditions... uh, are in fact most likely present. That's the difference yep. between a warning and a watch, correct? Yep. Environment Canada says they're tracking a storm in that area. So uh, if you happen to be, especially around the Bissette area, uh, you may want to, and we can kind of see the storm clouds building out uh, of our Polo Park studio here. Uh, so uh, if you happen to be in that area, you may want to pay, pay attention and keep your eye to the sky. We'll uh, take a pause. We'll update your traffic. We'll update you on weather. And then Richard and Julie will come in and let us know, let you know, what they have in store for you from 4 to 7 on the news. It's Greg and Tristan right here on 680 CJOB. Tristan is here for Brett for the rest of the week. Brett will be back on Monday afternoon at 1 o'clock. couple of text messages here. Heather says they could be premature ending the watches and warnings when you see the sky to the west, eyes to the sky, she says. And on the conversation regarding emergency room closures, what about the people in Transcona, EK, North Caledonia, et cetera, with no Concordia or urgent care? Where do they all go? I think mm. an urgent care might not have been a bad idea for Concordia, but I can tell you, with all due respect to the wonderful people that work at Concordia, most people in that corner of the city already drive right by Concordia Emergency Room to go to St. B because there's not a lot of confidence in that emergency room Oof. in my part of the city. Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham in studio now to set up the news. And uh, Richard, uh, lots of information this afternoon from the provincial government with the by-election in Point Douglas now in the rearview mirror. Uh, we can get back to uh, regular operations at the province, so to speak. This is one of those days where we call it the document dump after the blackout is over with the by-election, and it begins with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. You're talking about all the changes. Lori Lamont, the Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer, will join us after the 4 o'clock news here in our 680 studios to uh, talk about the changes and what they mean and uh, why they're closing some, reopening some other programs Lamont will join us, and then later in the program, Brock Wright, the doctor who's in charge of clinical services, chief medical officer, will also get union reaction. And your reaction, Sheldon Rogers of Global News, was uh, outside Victoria General Hospital this afternoon. We'll get all sorts of reaction and information to you on that story. The VIC closing in October, right? That's the third of October, and switching switching to an urgent care. I don't think most people, in my humble opinion, are going to notice much of a difference. At the Vic, you're going to walk through the doors. There's still going to be all of the little treatment rooms. You're still going to line up and wait. Uh, I think you're bang on on that. I, I don't think a lot of people are going a, to notice a, the difference. A very emergency, uh, an They're emergency going to case. Send you out of there. You sent. You get sent right now to St. Boniface or Health Sciences Center to begin with. Uh, so part of this is an education process as well. 
Lamont will join us after the four news. We'll also speak with Muriel Delawhite. We spoke with her uh, a little while ago. She was a, a local senior and she was doing some shopping at a superstore and her purse ultimately got stolen. The one time she said she didn't wear it across her body, not only did her purse get swiped, her keys and ultimately Ooh. her car, which has never been recovered. Mm. They've made an arrest in the case. We got a little bit of reaction from her and she says she still makes an effort to let people know to watch their purses. And we are listening to uh, both of you today, but specifically you, Greg, about our contest idea to give away the Red River X Pass. See, I'm creeping into his brain. I'm creeping into your brain, Greg Mackling. Uh If you came up with a creative way to give away tickets aside from trivia, I have officially wormed my way into your gray matter it's so we are all part of the plan using some point your between idea 4 30 and 5 30 you get to call in and say you want to go, go faster? faster i love it we did a little whole little thing yesterday saying on 680 hey, that's C-J-O-B. right that's julie buckingham right over there <laughs> i love it uh, real quick rich uh in 15 seconds are you surprised at the uh lack of emergency type reaction to the situation in churchill from the province no, not yet. I think they're assessing just how much it's going to cost, and they're also looking for the federal government to take the lead on this. Yeah, I know they have to ask for help from the federal government. Richard, uh, Richard. Mike Spence, by the way, will join us live in studio after 6. That's the mayor, mayor Churchill. of Churchill. Richard Cluche, Julie Buckingham, the news straight through until 7 mm-hmm. o'clock. Tristan and I will be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Jeffrey Forche, the man on Master Control, thank you for keeping us on task. Are, are we done now? We're done. We'll say goodbye. We'll see you tomorrow. You never ignore what your producer says because there will be hell to pay afterwards. Okay. That's true. Let's say goodbye now. (laughs) Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.